Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled From the Wilderness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 9th, 2018. In this week's gospel, we read that the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Why such a barren and desolate setting? If you have any experience in real estate, you know the mantra, location, location, location. Location is key. The place where we stand, the terrain we occupy, the space from which we speak, these things matter. I've never seen John the Baptist featured in an Advent calendar or a Christmas display, but all four Gospels place him front and center in Jesus' origin story. John's gaunt austerity is the only gateway we have to the swaddling clothes, angel wings, and fleecy lambs we hold dear each December. As baffling as it may seem, the holy drama of the season depends on the locust-eating baptizer's opening act. So again, why the wilderness? Why does Advent begin in the wilderness? Our Gospel reading for the week takes pains to position John very carefully in time and space. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius, St. Luke writes, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Cephas, John heard God's word in the wilderness. That seven seats of wealth, power, and influence in just one sentence, seven centers of authority, both political and religious, Seven very important people occupying seven very important positions. But God's word doesn't come to any of them. Perhaps the first wilderness lesson, then, is a lesson about power. The gospel highlights a startling juxtaposition between those who experience God's speaking presence and those who don't. In Luke's account, emperors, governors, rulers, and high priests, the folks who wield power, don't hear God. But the outsider from the wilderness does. What is it about power that deafens us to the word? Maybe Tiberius, Pilate, Caiaphas, and Herod can't receive a fresh revelation from God because they presume to hear and speak for God already. After all, they're in power. Doesn't that mean that they embody God's will automatically? If not, well, who cares? They already have pomp, money, military might, and the weight of religious tradition at their disposal. They don't need God. But in the wilderness... In the wilderness, there's no safety net, no plan B, no savings account or national guard. In the wilderness, life is raw and risky, and our illusions of self-sufficiency fall apart fast. To locate ourselves at the outskirts of power is to confess our vulnerability in the starkest terms. In the wilderness, we have no choice but to wait and watch, as if our lives depend on God showing up. Because they do. And it's into such an environment, an environment so far removed from power as to make power laughable, that the word of God comes. But Luke goes on. Not only is the wilderness a place that exposes our need for God, it's a place that calls us to repentance. John went into all the region around the Jordan, Luke tells us, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Elsewhere in the Gospels, we read that crowds streamed into the wilderness to heed John's call. In other words, They left the lives they knew best and ventured into the unknown to save their hearts through repentance. Something about the wilderness brought people to their knees. For us 21st century Christians, though, sin and repentance are loaded words we try to avoid. 
Many of us, particularly those of us who grew up in fundamentalist circles, actively dislike the word sin. We associate it with paralyzing guilt and eternal hellfire, with fear and self-loathing rather than grace and mercy. Many of us also distrust the word because we've seen how easily it can be manipulated to justify one moralistic agenda over another. In some churches, abortion and homosexuality are the big bad sins, while our rape of this planet and our systemic disregard for the poor are not. In others, the capital S sins include hawkish foreign policy, capital punishment, and corporate greed, not unloving sex, mind-numbing busyness, and intellectual snobbery. And yet, Advent began with an honest, wilderness-style reckoning with sin. We can't get to the manger unless we go through John, and John is all about repentance. Is it possible that this might become an occasion for relief? Maybe, if we can get past our baggage and follow John out into the wilderness, we will find comfort in the fact that something more profound and deep is at stake in our souls than, I make mistakes sometimes, or I have a few issues. What is sin? Growing up, I was taught that sin is breaking God's laws, or missing the mark, as an archer misses his target, or committing immoral acts. These definitions aren't wrong, but they assume that sin is a problem primarily because it angers God. But God's temper is not what's at stake. He's more than capable of managing his own emotions. Sin is a problem because it kills. It kills us. Why? Because sin is a refusal to become fully human. It's anything that interferes with the opening up of our whole hearts to God, to others, to creation, and to ourselves. Sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, disharmony, it's the slow accumulation of dust, choking the soul. It's the sludge that slows us down that says, quit, stop trying, give up. Change is impossible. Sin is apathy, carelessness, a frightened resistance to an engaged life. Sin is the opposite of creativity, the opposite of abundance, the opposite of flourishing. It is a walking death. And it is easier to spot, name, and confess a walking death in the wilderness than it is anywhere else. Finally, Luke suggests that the wilderness is a place where we can see the landscape whole and participate in God's great work of leveling inequality and oppression. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Luke predicts a day when every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth. Unless we're in the wilderness, it's hard to see our own privilege, and even harder to imagine giving it up. No one standing on a mountaintop wants the mountain to be flattened. When we're wandering in the wilderness, an immense, barren landscape stretched out before us in every direction, we're able to see what privileged locations obscure. Suddenly we feel the rough places beneath our feet. We experience what it's like to struggle down twisty, crooked paths. We glimpse arrogance in the mountains and desolation in the valleys, and we begin to dream God's dream of a wholly reimagined landscape. A landscape so smooth and straight it enables all flesh to see the salvation of God. Where are you located during this Advent season? How close are you to power? And how open are you to risking the wilderness to hear a word from God? What might repentance look like for you here and now? Where is God leveling the ground you stand on? And what will it take for you to participate in that uncomfortable but essential work? Location, location, location. The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. May it come to us too. Like John... May we become brave voices crying out in the wilderness. For books this week, <clears throat> Dan Reviews, Jim Forrest's At Play in the Lion's Den, 
a biography and memoir of Daniel Berrigan. On April 30, 2016, Daniel Joseph Berrigan died just 10 days short of his 99th birthday. Berrigan was many things to many people. Jesuit priest, poet, playwright, author of over 60 books, university professor, and peace activist. He spent a long life celebrating the good news of Jesus rather than the bad news of Caesar. Most of all, like Elijah of old, he was a troubler of the modern conscience. Jim Forrest begins his book with the most remembered anecdote of Berrigan's life. In 1968, he and eight other activists stole 378 draft files of young men who were about to be sent to Vietnam, dumped them into two garbage cans, poured homemade napalm on them, and burned them in the parking lot of the Catonsville, Maryland draft board. But there was so much more. In 1980, he trespassed into General Electric's nuclear missile plant in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, poured blood on some warhead nose cones, and hammered away to punctuate the prophetic point. For these and similar activities, he and his brother Philip spent time on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, not to mention significant time in prison, about 11 years for Phil. When asked one time how many times he had been arrested for the gospel, Berrigan replied, apparently not enough. For his 80th birthday, he remarked, the day, after I'm, the day after I'm embalmed, that's when I'll give it up. Berrigan's civil disobedience protested government policies on a broad range of issues. Racism, he marched in Selma, nuclear arms, he founded the Plowshares Movement, the death penalty, and most famously Vietnam, partnering with the likes of Howard Zinn and Thomas Merton. He was also a pro-life activist. Berrigan was also a clear-eyed realist. I was interested to read in his New York Times obituary by Daniel Lewis about his deep discouragements. Lewis writes, While he was known for his wry wit, there was a darkness in much of what Father Berrigan wrote and said, the burden of which was that one had to keep trying to do the right thing regardless of the near certainty that it would make no difference. In the withering of the pacifist movement and the country's general support for the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, he saw proof that it was folly to expect lasting results. This is the worst time of my long life, he said in an interview with The Nation in 2008. I've never had such meager expectations of the system. What made it bearable, he wrote elsewhere, was a disciplined, implicitly difficult belief in God as the key to sanity and survival. But this was only his penultimate word rather than a final word. In his book, No Gods But One, a chapter and verse study of Deuteronomy, he wrote, Nor is the fall the final judgment, as though we were bereft of all hope. No, there has occurred an intervention of God for healing and reconciliation, an intervention named Jesus. At the end of that book, he calls us to behave as though the truth were true. Similarly, in his meditation on First and Second Kings, the kings and their gods, he leaves us with this last word on his final page. One must urge to his own soul first a firm rebutting midrash, bring Christ to bear, read the gospel closely, obediently, welcome no enticements, no other claim on conscience. Mourn the preachers and priests whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel. Enter the maelstrom, the wilderness, flee the claim that would possess your soul. Earn the blessing, pay up. Blessed, and lonely, and powerless, and intent on the master, and if must be, despised, scorned, locked up. Blessed are the makers of peace. Jim Forrest's biography is a single best volume on Berrigan to date. He includes significant material on the life of Dan's brother Philip, and his subtitle is important. Forrest is no disinterested observer. He was a close friend and collaborated with Berrigan for over 50 years. One special feature of this book, 
are the archival photographs that appear on almost every page. For movies this week, Dan reviews Refugee. This short documentary, 24 minutes, made by the Annenberg Space for Photography, is a powerful, if, if impressionistic, introduction to our global refugee crisis of 65 million people who have been forced to leave their homes. The sparse narration by Kate Blanchett follows five photojournalists who document the plight of these people. The British Todd Stoddard is on the beach in Lesbos, Greece, when the rubber rafts wash ashore and the refugees trade their life jackets for a foil blanket. In separate segments, he then follows their trek to the pouring rain and sea of mud in the desolate no-man's land between Croatia and Slovenia, and then to their destination in Berlin. The Mexican Graciela Iturbide works in the slum in Colombia among people internally displaced by gang violence and drug wars. The Senegalese fashion photographer Omar Diop took his first trip ever to a refugee camp in Cameroon, where people fleeing violence in the Central African Republic had fled. The American Pulitzer Prize winner Lindsay Adario travels to Myanmar and documents the displaced Rohingya Muslims. And finally, the German-born Martin Scholler welcomes recently unsettled refugees to his studio in New York, where he takes facial Polaroid portraits. Unfortunately, says Itrabide, photography can't save the world. We have to save it. Photography can't do that. For two other films on this subject, see Dan's reviews of, of Human Flow by the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei and Fire at Sea. Dan watched this film on Netflix streaming. And finally, for poetry for the second Sunday of Advent, Denise Levertov's On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts, as guest, as brother, the word. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 9th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.